Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. I will admit up front that uh, I, I went into this uh, this interview uh, with not knowing what to expect, perhaps with low expectations. I, I agreed to interview Corey Muscara because he was recommended to me by by somebody out, actually out in Hollywood who felt pretty strongly that I should sit down with Corey. He's a very young meditation teacher from Long Island uh, who has made some appearances on the Dr. Oz broadcast. So I, I, I didn't – he doesn't have a book that I could read or anything like that. So I didn't really know what to expect, and I was so – impressed by this guy. So you're going to hear me become increasingly impressed, and you'll probably feel the same way yourself during the course of this interview. So enough for me. Here he is, Corey Mascara. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, my pleasure. If you've ever listened to the show, you know I just start off with the same question, which is how did you start meditating? So how did you start meditating? Yeah, yeah. You know, I I have an interesting path. Well, I'm sure a lot of people say that, but unique in the sense that I think many people that come to meditation um, often come through maybe the realm of uh, deeper suffering or they're really spiritual or, you know, uh, hipsterish. Um, I got into I got into meditation because of a girl. You're not you're not unhip. <laughs> I'm I mean I'm not I mean I'm wearing I'm wearing mala beads, so um, I might fall in that category, but. Uh, yeah, I, I primarily got into this because uh, I had a hippie girlfriend in college. She was in a meditation, and I basically started meditating uh, more or less to impress her. I mean, that's <laughs> when I started taking it seriously, at least. I think that's a pretty good reason, just for the record. Oh, at the time, it was a great reason. Yeah. It's still, even now, there's no happy ending to that because she <laughs> you broke up with me several weeks later. But, <laughs> but there's a really happy ending, which is that it actually changed your life. That's the thing. And so despite it being um, like a superficial undertaking, in a very short period of time, I noticed some pretty significant results in my life. Uh, and at that point, I was someone that used to wake up like 20 to 30 times a night, very restless sleep. My mind was constantly going. And this, uh, you know, this is going to sound like a bold sales pitch for meditation, but within two to three weeks of just meditating, I was doing three times a week, 15 minutes a day, lying on my dorm room bed, had no idea what I was, just focusing on my breath. I went from waking up 20 to 30 times a night to waking up only two to three times a night. And sometimes I wasn't waking up at all. And I had taken sleep medications and stuff, and um, nothing had a shift like that. So, I mean, anyone that suffers from an insomnia, you could just imagine the the radical shift that that could have. Mm-hmm. Um, I rarely see results like that, that radical, but that was one of my experiences. Um, you mean in other people, you, your, your t- students and things like that. That's yeah. right. I mean, and we do, I see, often uh, improved sleep, improved insomnia, and the research suggests that as well. But um, to make such a shift like that, that was that was huge. You know, and, and so I, I just I started getting interested in what's going on with this meditation thing. But uh, I was an economics major, and this was in college when I when I was getting involved. So nobody in the economics department was talking about anything to do with meditation. So um, the the tipping point really came for me when we we took this trip to the New York Stock Exchange every year. The Allegheny College, where I went to undergrad, we take this big trip to the New York Stock Exchange, and this year we were to meet with this multi billionaire hedge fund manager. And everyone said, like, this is the guy. If you could get anywhere, this is where you want to get. If you could learn from anyone, this is the guy you want to learn from. And at that point, I was already, like, questioning, is is finance what I really want to go into? But I was like, all right, maybe this guy will rekindle my enthusiasm for the business world. We go there, take the eight-hour trip, sit around tables, like 30 of us. He gives a two-hour PowerPoint presentation, and it just sucked my soul right out of my body. Huh. And I said, I don't know exactly what I want to do with my life, but I know I do not want to end up like that guy. And 
you know, to be fair to that guy, he could have just been having a bad day. He might have rolled off the wrong side of the bed. Like, I'm not saying he's a miserable person, and I'm definitely not saying all people in finance are miserable because I know plenty of people that are very content. But the the point of that was um, that for the first time, I really started questioning if that's not what I want, then what is it that I want? And everything I, every answer that kept uh, coming up could be reduced to the very cliche, like, I want to be happy. And that, that's not the first thing that was coming. A lot of it was, like, well, I want to have a family. And why do you want a family? So I can have kids. Why? Because that will give me greater meaning. Well, what does that do? Oh, it gives me more happiness. I want to make money. Why? So I could go on vacation. Why? So I could be real. Oh, then I'll be happier. And so I could just see that so everything was, like, pushing me in that direction. Um, and so I got fascinated with... Um, happiness, well-being, but I, I, I could see up until that point, the exploration of it was in manipulating the external world. And uh, I got very interested in what is the possibility of cultivating a contentment that did not derive from external factors. Mm. Uh, so I came home from spring break and, um, you know, you can imagine a young man going home, talking to his father, saying like, hey, dad, I know I was in a business, but now I think I want to study happiness. Usually it's going to be met with like, okay, that's great for you, but uh, go get a job. <laughs> and uh, instead, it was um, my father, who's a physician on Long Island, was kind of just getting frustrated with the direction of healthcare, And he was looking at just different ways, evidence-based ways to, to create positive behavior change and well-being and positive health. And that took him into the realm of um, the science of positive psychology and mindfulness. And he said, Core, if that is something that you're interested in, it's now something that you could explore through an evidence-based lens. Uh, it's not exclusive to just religion and philosophy. There's a way that you can understand this scientifically. And uh, he gave me John Kabat-Zinn's first book, Full Catastrophe Living. Yeah. And um, yeah. just every word of that book uh, the the phrase that comes up is "Dead Poet Society." When Robin Williams goes, uh, "We don't we don't read poetry; we let it drip from our tongues like honey." That's what it was like just to read it. And so um, there was something deep inside me. I couldn't put a name on it. It was, but it, it spoke volumes, saying, "This is what you need to do with your life." It was such a clear understanding that if this kind of work could pay these kinds of dividends, at least the dividends that they're promising, um, what could be a more worthwhile investment of my time? And uh, it all just went like that. And then, you know, like two years later, I was in a monastery <laughs> with a shaved head. <laughs> I want to get to that real quick. Yeah. But first, just I let you, your reference to John Kabat-Zinn go by, and I just, I, I've made a commitment to myself that when people use a name that I will make sure that the listeners know who that person is. Yeah. John Kabat-Zinn has been a guest on this podcast who is just kind of the granddaddy of of modern secular mindfulness. He doesn't like the term secular, but I'm going to Does he like the term granddaddy? <laughs> he doesn't mind granddaddy because he actually is now a granddaddy. Yeah. Um, uh, he has no problem with that, I don't think. Um, anyway, Full Catastrophe Living is among his books. He's also wrote a book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. All, these are great books, and he's a guy who can talk about He's a He's a... Uh, scientist himself by training at MIT and then ended up uh, getting interested in how to make uh, mindfulness something that could be taught in a secular context, specifically within healthcare. And it's just, it's, it is what has boomed into this yeah. big current mindfulness uh, juggernaut we're looking at. Anyway, yeah. having said that, just for, <laughs> just to, just keep everybody up to speed here, you went to a monastery in Burma? In Burma. Okay. Yeah. How did you get there? How long were you there? Oh, what was it like to have your head shaved? What was it like <laughs> to be there? I want to know everything. All right, all right, all right. Uh, so, you know, I actually started getting 
I, I teach mindfulness-based stress reduction, John's program. Um, so I started getting into this work. I started getting professionally trained while I was in college to teach that program. So my, my entry point into mindfulness was was through that lens. Um, and then I, I, you know, I went on my first silent retreat here in the West Where? and uh, at IMS. Insight, okay. yeah. Insight, Meditation Insight Meditation Society, Society which Sorry, is yes. in Barry Massachusetts, Massachusetts and is run by some very close friends of mine, yeah, Joseph. Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, and was all, uh, Jack Cornfield was also involved in starting it. So these are also friends. These guys are all friends with John Kabat-Zinn. This is their part of this cabal that I refer to as the Jews. The Jews. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not alone in calling them that. And uh, anyway, so you went there. That's and 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 that's an interesting place for you to go on a silent retreat because you were teaching MBSR, which is the secular mindfulness, but IMS is avowedly Buddhist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, However, you know, as I'm sure John, I I imagine he would reveal, he's he's come more out uh, in in recent years um, talking more openly about Buddhism and its role in MBSR. Not that he ever totally shied away from that, but in the beginning, you couldn't be talking about, you know, Dharma Buddhism in the late 70s and expect people to be receptive to it in healthcare. Um, all, all to say that the underpinnings of MBSR really do come from the, the Buddhist tradition. And uh, they, they encouraged us as part of our mindfulness-based stress reduction training, if we were to be teachers, to go on silent meditation retreats. And they highly encouraged going to Insight Meditation Society, Spirit Rock, which is the IMS of the West Coast. Um, and so that's that's how I went there. And I was more or less going there for seven days of silence just so I could cross it off my, mm. my prerequisite <laughs> list of like, all right, now I could be an, an MBSR teacher. Um, and I, you know, I went with my father, believe it or not. It was a it was a seven day loving kindness meditation retreat where for those that might not be familiar with loving kindness, you're essentially repeating um, these phrases of wishing well-being to other people, yourself, a difficult person, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be safe, etc. So uh, for someone that came to this from like a very logical, science-oriented uh, mind of like, all right, this is a way for me to observe my experience in, in a logical way, um, to start repeating these phrases over and over, it it went over my head. I couldn't uh, connect with it, didn't feel anything, and I kind of just... I found value in just learning to sit with myself for seven days straight, but at the end, um, didn't feel like anything spectacular happened. Uh, but I knew all these people were having amazing, you know, results from this work, and uh, I I took my Type A personality that I had my entire life and just took it right into meditation. I said I want to go deep and I want to do it as quickly as possible. I had just graduated college, I had seventy thousand dollars worth of college loans. Um, so I was, I'm going to defer these as for, you know, a year and I was going to dive into this. And I talked to my teachers at IMS, so Michelle McDonald, um, was one of them. And I said, like, listen, I got, I got six months. Um, I want to do something that is going to take me to the heart of this practice. Uh, I want it to be difficult because I had felt like at that point I had lived a mostly privileged lifestyle and I knew, um, eventually it was going to hit the fan and I wanted to, um, you know, I had I had the gravy right now in my life, but I didn't actually I didn't feel like I had my mashed potatoes yet. Mm-hmm. So as soon as the gravy was gone, I was like, what else was there? And uh, I wanted to this, that might be a terrible example, a metaphor, but I wanted to develop I'm my mashed you. potatoes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> something to sustain yeah. myself, nourish myself. Um, and again, cultivate that contentment that did not derive solely from external variables. And I wanted to cry. Like, I just wanted this to be hard. And I said, can I find peace in some form of pain and suffering? Um, and you sound she, like a young man. Yeah, exactly. Very, oh. like, 
grit your teeth and go for it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And and uh, naive at that point, and arguably still, just you don't get many people coming to this work looking for that. And I think those people that think they that's what they want have no idea what they're signing up for. And also to acknowledge, there's no real way to fabricate suffering. So I'm not saying like going into a monastery is the same suffering as being in war or trauma or. But at, for me, at that point in time, I the idea of severing myself from all external comforts and family and friends and going into silence, that was intense for me. Yeah. And so I t- said, that's what I want. And they said, all right, well, if you, want, if you want something like that and you want the mindfulness teachings, you should go over to Burma. Like really intense teachings over there, some of the best teachers in the world. And if you wanted to be really hard, you should study under this guy, Sayadaw Upandita. Um, who was who was my teacher there? And I said, "That's what I want." Legendary teacher. Like, oh, yes, yeah. Yes. I have, have you had some references to him? Oh well, he was a teacher for Joseph and Sharon, That's and right. um, he recently passed away. And yeah. he's known as being um, just kind of the toughest, most demanding uh, of all mindfulness teachers ever. Oh God, that guy! I mean, just <laughs> tough, tough love. He would come around. I mean, I'll go through <laughs> more of my experience there, but just one one uh, story that's coming to mind. Um, it was about three months into the retreat, and there were there were about 150 foreigners there because he he comes he came he would come for all of December, all of January, and just give Dharma talks every single day. Dharma talk is just a meditation talk, so everyone from like all over the world would would come to study under this guy. So we'd be we'd have these um, cottages set up, kind of like in a horseshoe shape, where one person be here, 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 just going around in a in a horseshoe. Um, and there was one day, I was ordained as a monk at this point. I was in my room just like really being beaten down, so much physical pain, so much emotional pain, just what the heck am I doing? So I took off all my robes, and so completely naked because you can't own any belongings other than your robes when you're a monk. Um, and I, I had them hanging in my room, and I just laid down on my bed um, butt naked. And you're not supposed to read in a, in a monastery, but I was just, I felt like I needed something that I could digest that was different than some of these teachings. So I pulled out Joseph Goldstein's uh, The Experience of Insight, which was actually one of the, the, probably the second meditation book I got. And I just, I just started reading this. And keep in mind, this is Sayadaw Upandita, who is just notoriously, like, if you're coming to that monastery, you are coming there to get enlightened or get the hell out. Mm-hmm. And he... He would say things right along those lines. So, and if you're a monk, you're held even to a higher standard. So here I am in my room, lying naked, reading Joseph Goldstein's <laughs> book, <laughs> and and I hear all these knocks on these different doors, um, and I'm like, what's going on? And I, I would, you know, I noticed, I thought well, I should check that out, but I noted it and came back to my breath, and I came back to reading, and then I hear this knock on my door. I'm like, oh, my God, I got to get up. And before I can get up to put my robe on, I see the door swing open. And Sayadaw Upandita is standing right there, just staring at me. Now, he doesn't speak any English, um, and I don't speak any Burmese. So he's just giving me this death stare. And it's not a compassionate, like, Dalai Lama, oh, I love you, but you should. It's like, I, you, what the hell are you doing in my monastery? Get the hell out. You do, you do not deserve to be here. Um, and then he just shut the door. And he was with these other two monks, and he pointed to my room number and just wrote it down in this sheet. 
What he was doing was going around to every single room, just opening people's doors without any permission, seeing what they were doing, and then jotting their room number down um, if they were doing something wrong. And then he would talk to the other teachers who were doing the meetings with us and basically have them scold us and say, like, I heard that you were doing this, this, and this, and this. If you're gonna if you're gonna be here, you got to take this seriously. So, um, you know that. That was an interesting encounter with with my teacher. So did you get scolded? I, I did. I did not by him, not by himself, but from someone else. Um, one of, because he has a lot of different teachers that are doing these interviews, and yeah. So I went and I knew something was going to happen, and so I came in to uh, the meeting the next day, and you have to do this bowing thing, bow down, and report what's going on in your practice. And at the end of that five minute meeting, he said, uh, "You know, Sayadupandita came to your room the other day, uh, and he saw you reading." You know these are against the precepts. You're not supposed to be reading while you're here. Make sure that you're taking the practice seriously. Uh, There's something along those lines. So, um, so that you know, it, <laughs> you meditated diligently, um, obviously out of a love for being there, but also there was an element of fear yeah. uh, because he would call people out in the in the Dharma hall. Like there'd be 150 people there. If somebody was looking at the clock, he would call. He'd point to you. And he would tell one of the other, you know, one of his teachers that were sitting up front to go over to that person and say something along the lines of this yogi is not paying attention. A good yogi, uh, a yogi is just a meditator. A good yogi should have their gaze down, be focused, not wandering. So, I mean, when you are in this guy's presence, his his mind is vast. The wisdom is there, but it's intense. It is intense. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Sounds like it. Wow. Yeah. So how long were you... On this retreat, that was about six and a half months. Wow! Of um, yeah, just silent, intensive practice. And you ordained as a monk, got your head shaved, a yeah. whole deal. Yeah. And have you done it since, or was that it? Um, I not not to diminish it. Six yeah, and a yeah, half months. Yeah, is a no, lot. yeah. Um, no, I haven't. I haven't been back to Burma since. I mean, I, I try and do at least a ten day silent retreat every year, but. It, yeah, to do something longer like that just gets harder uh, and harder. Yes, of um, course. Of unless course. you know, if I if I uh, were a Dharma specific teacher and like I made my life specifically teaching the uh, teaching Buddhism, um, I would have my priorities in a different order. But and making time to go on longer retreats. But for right now, I I teach primarily uh, secular mindfulness, mainstream mindfulness, and keeping it as practical as possible, as non-polarizing as possible for people, and reaching as many people as, as I can. And um, I wouldn't be able to, if I were teaching you know, three-month retreats, that would be amazing, and my heart is in that as well. But 90% of the people that I teach have no interest in that whatsoever. So for me, it's, um, it's important to stay grounded in the world in a similar way that many of my students are. Uh, and I found when I first came back from Asia, it was it was actually hard for me to relate to the person waking up in the morning at 5 a.m. And like the idea of a retreat for them is the five minutes they get in the bathroom before the kids wake up. So uh, I, I, I found it helpful for me to um, not go away for as long um, and just to have my, you know, my daily meditation practice. So... Uh... I want to hear more about that in a second, but yeah. just back to the retreat. You're right. His uh, his emphasis is on enlightenment, by which he refers 
by by which he is referring to or was referring to when he was alive, the uprooting of negative emotions, which is a pretty radical thing that happens in a stepwise progression under the map that he uses. That's right. Um, and the first step in this progress is stream entry, and the second one is once returner, and then you become a non-returner. As I've said before, it sounds very Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> but but uh, there is sort of like you're not supposed to talk about how far you are on this map, But so I don't know how comfortable you are. But did anything interesting, special happen to you while you were there for six and a half months? Yeah. Yeah, so um, it is interesting. There, it's it's like not kosher to talk about like your different levels of insight um, and enlightenment. Um, so I, I will share I will share one experience that happened um, around the, the f- five and a half month mark right before I was about to leave. It's it's very difficult to track your progress on a retreat like that because the progress is often very incremental. And I remember getting to the fifth the, the like five months in and taking some time just to reflect on like how much have I actually gotten out of this? And I wasn't actually sure because your reference point is just. Uh, Saito Upendita saying, you need to do more, you need to do more. You need... So it's never good enough. Um, and so I actually kind of started coming to the end feeling like, you know, where's the big experience that I've been looking for? Um, and so I used to do this this seeing meditation after breakfast every day. There's a little bridge as you're walking back to the meditation hall um, that overlooks a pond. And I would just sit there for about an hour during our hour-long break and just look over the pond. And seeing meditation is, you know, same thing as just focusing on the breath. Instead, you're just being aware of anything that you're seeing without the story of, oh, I like that tree. Oh, that's beautiful. I wonder if I should bring trees back to my bar- yard. You know, that would be the story. It's just, all right, just seeing, just seeing. And so I would do that. I probably did that for about two months straight, just as hour-long seeing meditation. And there was one day in particular where um, I woke up one morning and just something felt different. There was a, a different degree of heat in my body, and my concentration was stronger than it had ever been before. You know, I before it was like my mind was just all over the place, but when I focused on my breath, it was like my attention was glued to the breath. If I would focus on my foot stepping, it was like my attention was glued to the foot stepping. So I was like, all right, there's something going on here today. I don't know what it's about. So I, I go through the motions, you know, wake up at three, do a couple hours of meditation, go to you breakfast. You wake up at just, oh, we don't want to let that slide by. <laughs> you wake up at three in the morning at this place. Yeah, you wake up at three in the morning. Yeah, so that's a whole, <laughs> whole other level of intensity. So, you know, by by the time breakfast is over, I had about three, yeah, four hours worth of meditation. And so I'm sitting at this bridge. And during those four hours, the, the intensity of the concentration is getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm looking out over the pond and it, as I'm doing so, my, my eyes latched onto a tree that I was looking at in the distance, and things in my peripheral just started to get a little darker, darker, and then I felt this heat continue to arise in my body, concentration getting stronger, and then just in one moment, um, it felt like everything evaporated, and the, the biggest evaporation was um, the sense of self. And in in just an instance, I came into this felt sense of a communion with everything that was around me. There was no longer any division between um, myself and what I was seeing. There was no longer quarry. There was no longer pond. It was just being, just seeing, just raw experience. The world. Just the world. Yeah. And you know that pl- sounds like stream entry. You know, I I won't um, I won't put a label on it, uh, but it was. It was a radical experience and transformed me moving forward, how I see myself, how I see the world in that space of 
communion, non-duality, there was just this innate sense of compassion and care. And I'm not someone that that comes very naturally to. I, you know, I, I was not involved in volunteer work growing up. I, I don't I didn't have this just natural altruistic sense of um, service toward other people in the way that other, my peers did. And in that experience, um, that it shifted uh, everything for me. And All because you were trying to impress a girl. That's right, right? <laughs> <laughs> I got to thank her one day for that. <laughs> okay, yeah. so that's amazing. That's an amazing story. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. And so just to orient us in time here. So you're how old are you now? Yeah, I'm 27 now. Okay, so you're still a really young guy. So yeah. this is all happening like six years ago probably, yeah, right? Yeah, about that. <clears throat> so you came home and b- basically became a, a full-time MBSR teacher. Is that right? Yeah. Is that what you do now? Yeah, I, I have a lot of different trainings. One of the things, being young in this world, every every training I went to, um, I was the youngest by 10, 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And so there was a part of me that uh, – <laughs> I wanted to make sure my credentials were solid. Yeah. So people is like, who was this young kid? know, uh, you know, about something that's often associated with wisdom, like yeah. mindfulness, meditation, wisdom. Um, so I, I got obsessed with doing these different trainings. So I did, you know, full MBSR teacher training. I did training through mindful schools. I did training through the search inside yourself program, uh, the mindfulness program at Google, um, breathworks, chronic pain. Um, you know, got my master's in positive psychology from UPenn and, uh, became a Duke integrative health coach, just like training after training after training, NLP, hypnosis. And part of it was like, I, I did want to make sure my resume was good, but the, the majority of it is like, I was fascinated by this stuff and all the different ways that these different teachers were, were teaching it. So, um, yeah, so my, my training is I, I teach in, in school settings and healthcare settings and in, in organizational settings and just to the public. On Long Island. Um, on Long Island and, um, you know, a lot of, do a lot of corporate stuff um, all over the, the country and, and sometimes outside of the country as well. And you do a lot of stuff or some stuff on Dr. Oz. Yeah. So um, they called me up 
several years ago to do one of their uh, their segments, and then that spiraled into uh, some other stuff with them. So yeah, I do some stuff with Dr. Oz. So, how regularly are you on there? Um, I, I actually haven't done a segment with them in a year because uh, you can only talk about mindfulness so many times, yeah. if, and you know that's getting into the whole wave, the fad of mindfulness, kind of maybe coming. Not crashing yet, but anyway, that's a whole other topic. Um, so, yeah, I haven't been on there probably in a year, but, uh, yeah, I did a number of stuff with them. So it's interesting to me because you teach mindfulness, and I think Dr. Oz does transcendental meditation, yeah. which is a different modality. Um, was that at all an issue? No, not at all. Uh, I, I mean, he's brought on, I think, some TM teachers in the past to talk about that that realm. Um, the research in with TM is, is more robust than people uh, – are aware of it's just mindfulness is so um, so hot right now that uh, that's one of the reasons like he was bringing it on yeah. the show. No, I think so, there's research for both for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, it wasn't an issue at all. He was very fascinated by it. And do you think? Because I've been on Doctor Oz's show before too, and I, and I I mean he's a great interviewer, and I think he totally gets it. I just wonder, like, do you think it makes an impact being on that show? Do you think his audience gets it, wants it, et cetera, et cetera? It's a good question. Uh, I got. A, I had a number of people that reached out to me. Um, you know, any time I go on there, saying they they either found it beneficial or it, it helped clarify some things. There, there are going to be different levels of how this work is beneficial for someone, and you can make the argument that going away for ten years and living in a cave is like going to be the most beneficial if you're on the path to enlightenment. And it's like, all right, are you going to do that? Probably not. Well, then what would next? Well, maybe an hour a day. Well, you're going to do that. Most people probably not. Maybe twenty minutes. Oh, maybe not. Um, maybe taking a mindfulness-based stress reduction course. Maybe, yeah. Maybe that'll be good. Are you going to do it? Maybe not. Maybe listening to you know ten minutes of this guy talking about basic practices on of meditation on Dr. Oz is that going to do it? If that's the thing that allows allows you to maybe be open to the idea of mindfulness. And then 10 years down the road, that's the memory that was there. It's like, oh, I saw that. I'm kind of into it. Then then I think that's great. Um, it's not for everyone at every point in time. And I can't give my whole pitch about why I would why I think this work is important in a seven-minute segment interview. But I, have, I know people that watch Dr. Oz religiously uh, and derive tremendous value. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm I'm with you. I I think I, I agree with your analysis. It, it, in the meditation world, the 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 um, analogy that sometimes gets used. This is actually a business analogy, but is of a funnel. Mm. So the top of the funnel is you know people who are kind of either skeptical or maybe mildly meditation curious. Um, and the bottom of the funnel is I'm in Burma with my head <laughs> shaved, uh, like commuting with a tree. Yeah. Um, you're actually, you know, you're dealing at the top of the funnel. It sounds to me like what you're doing, you're, you're teaching in corporations and um, in, in hospitals, et cetera, and going on TV, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm curious from that perspective, uh, one of the things that I've become really focused on as a as a person who talks about meditation publicly is what are the obstacles? Like what's getting in the way of people meditating? I have a friend who's at Google who's in charge of getting people to meditate at Google and um, his name is Bill Duane and um, he said, he has some expression, I don't know if I'm going to get it right, but it's like we know the medicine works. We just can't get people to take it. So from your perspective, again, at the top of the funnel, like what are the major obstacles and how do we get people over them? Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, I'll start with maybe the obvious one, uh, which is time. You know, even though you can tell people you don't need to do this for an hour a day, they still have this feeling like, oh, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. 
And so if you wake up in the morning and the the thought is like, oh, I have to do 20 minutes of meditation a day. If you came right off of a workshop or, you know, a retreat and you're really inspired, you're probably going to do that 20 minutes. But after a couple of weeks of that, it's like a 20 minutes of meditation or I could hit the snooze button or I could watch an episode of Modern Family. You're probably going to start choosing the latter after a point in time. And so um, that in itself just becomes a barrier to entry. Uh, the cost of opting in for many people is too much. The opportunity cost is too great. So what I have been telling people, if they find themselves in that category, that camp of like, I can't do 30 minutes, can't do 20 minutes, then just commit to one minute. And and why? Do I think one minute is like going to be the thing that changes your life? You know, it could be really powerful, but not not so much. What I love about one minute is there's um, very it's a very low cost option, very few barriers to entry, because if you start saying like, oh, I don't have a minute to meditate. We really got to start evaluating some things going on in your life because <laughs> right. you definitely need more than meditation if you make that argument. Even if it's like, you know, I, I, you know, do it while you're in the bathroom. And if you say, I don't have a minute more to do it in the bathroom, like do your meditation business while you're doing your other business. You can fit one <laughs> minute in. So with that, it's hard to argue yourself out of it. And now when you get somebody that wakes up in the morning, it's like, all right. Uh, it was 20 minutes. Well, what if I just did one minute? So that, so, all right, I could do one minute. So I sit down, do one minute. Usually what happens, people get to the end of one minute and I go, ah, you know what? This kind of feels good. Let me do two minutes. All right. Then I do mm-hmm. two minutes. And mm-hmm. I, I like this. Oh, let me do three. And you can see what happens. You go from one to two to three to four to five. But what's key there is you go from this space of arguing yourself out of the meditation to actually arguing, arguing yourself, yourself in. into it. Yes. And why that is so important, more from a, a psychology perspective, is... I'm um, literally going to pull my phone out and start <laughs> typing this down. Okay, so this, cool. is, this is not me being distracted. This is me being the opposite of distracted. And I'll tell you why in a second, but keep going. Uh, yeah. Um, so th- one of the reasons that's so important is because it leverages something called autonomy. And if you study intrinsic motivation, self-determined behavior, specifically research by this guy named... Um, Ed DC and Richard Ryan out of University of Rochester. They have like 30 plus years of research understanding what drives people to do things. Autonomy is foundational to that. And so I have this theory that I've been working, I haven't written anything about it um, yet, but when you set a timer or you have an external standard stipulation of like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, I have to do that. It's a subtle form, very subtle, but uh, but still a form of external regulation where there, it's it's kind of like the difference between your mom and dad, you saying like, I want to go to soccer practice. And like now you're driven to go to soccer practice versus your mom and dad saying you have to go to soccer practice. Like, ah, now I have to. Um, that, that sometimes the timer can act as, like I have to get to the end of 30 minutes. So when you're opting into every subsequent moment after that one minute mark, um, now there is full autonomy there. And because that there's going to be greater curiosity, there's going to be greater interest. It's like you chose to be in this moment. You chose to be with this moment of pain if it's coming up. That's very different than having to grit your teeth and get through it. So I get that there's going to be different arguments around this and people will say, well, you got to, you know, sometimes you got to grit your teeth to go through, to, to understand and how to be with it. And you got to do the 30 minutes and you know, sit through. I totally get that. But it, for many people, it's either the one minute or nothing at all. And I'd rather see them at least um, start with something they're going to do and then feel like they have autonomy and interest in sustaining it moving forward. Okay. I, I've just taken a bunch of notes on my phone as you were talking. And here's why. Aside from the fact that that was just interesting, really interesting in and of itself, I'm actually, as we speak, in the middle of writing a chapter for my next book, which is like a little book. Um, the next book I'm going to put out, which is, comes out in, in New Year, is, is a sort of um, 
a companion piece to 10% Happier. It's like the book is a road trip we we took across the country where we tried to find people who want to meditate but aren't hmm. and made a taxonomy of all the reasons people aren't doing it. And then we're trying to come up with great rebuttals to the reasons people aren't doing it. And so I'm in the middle of writing a chapter about the time issue right now because oh, time is the trickiest issue. Because you just taught, you, you just gave a great disquisition on it, but... It, a, a part of what when people there was something you said before like if, if somebody says they don't have one minute well we need to really talk about your life in some ways actually what I found in my research is and I'm sure this is going to ring true to you when people say they don't have time they actually sometimes mean a bunch of other things yeah including I don't believe in the benefits I don't want to make time yeah it can speak to just laziness and inertia it can also speak to a fear of seeing what's there, what I refer to as the Pandora's box issue, mm. that if I look, I'm going to see all of my trauma, all of my ugliness, the whole mess. The other issue is people feel like, um, I don't deserve this. Yeah. You know, I see this with my wife. My wife, who's a scientist, who knows the benefits, uh, and is married to a guy who's much less of an idiot than he used to be <laughs> because he meditates, and yet she can't do it. Yeah. And part of that is because she just doesn't believe she deserves the self-care on some level. Yeah. And I see this with a lot of a lot of people, particularly people in the helping professions. Like my wife is a doctor, and I, I've seen, seen it also in the course of my road trip with um, social workers, et cetera, et cetera. So this time issue, which is the number one thing, yeah. um, is a kind of a window into a much deeper, darker place oh, in yeah. our psyche. Yeah, you're, you're right on. Uh, and you alluded to um, what I call the P word, uh, permission giving yourself permission to actually do this. And and one of the reasons why I say sometimes that a mi- if you just did a minute, let's say you, you didn't do the one to two to three minutes, you just did one minute for the rest of your life, you're showing yourself that you're at least worth showing up for yourself for one minute a day. And that is going to carry over into subsequent moments. But you know, above me on that, when I when I will first, usually like if I'm guiding uh, people through their first meditation, it'll be about 12 minutes long. I will spend about three minutes in the beginning with people's eyes closed, just walking them through, um, you know, the fact that I'm sure there's been plenty going on in your life right now before you came here, once this is over, plenty to do. But keeping in mind that you've allocated this time for yourself right now. And because of that, there's no place else you need to be, nothing else you need to do, nothing you need to accomplish. And see if you can give yourself the permission to be here. Um, and then I'll, I'll cite a quote by Parker Palmer uh, and he says, self-care is never a selfish act. It's simply good stewardship of the only gift we have, the gift we were put on this earth to offer others. Anytime that we can take care of ourselves in this way, we do it not just for ourselves, but for the many others whose lives we aim to serve. Well, yeah, I don't know. A less, a less fancy way of saying that is what they say during the airline safety instructions. Don't put other people's oxygen masks on until you put your own on first. You can't be of use yeah. if you're a mess. That's right. It's just it, it's just what it is. I'm going to make an admission. All right? You know you might not like this. Uh, but you'll like it at the end. <laughs> you will you won't like it at the beginning. Um so I had some misgivings about having you on, not because because I didn't really know who you were, and I, I this guy who I don't know this guy who's a big agent, a Hollywood agent, reached out to me, yeah. um, who I didn't know him either, but you know seemed like a pretty impressive dude, and he was like, you know, you should really take a look at Corey, and so I just was like, all right, fine, I'll do it, and 
you are really impressive. <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> that I, because I came, I, I, I mean, I thought I was going to like you because you're, we have a lot in common, but I'm like, ah, he's a 27-year-old guy, <laughs> whatever, he's on Dr. Oz. Not, not, not that I have anything against Dr. Oz, because I've been on Dr. Oz. But anyway, you are a, 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 a massively pleasant surprise. Oh, Let me just say you. that as a, as a compliment that is very genuine. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Bef- I'm, we're almost done. I've just I got to cut two more questions for you. Before we finish, I want to pick up on something you alluded to before, mm-hmm. that maybe the mindfulness wave is crashing or cresting or something like that. Do you think that's true? Uh, it's so hard to tell. Um, I, I don't think people's attention spans can 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 continue to see mindfulness on the cover of Time magazine uh, more than two more times, in my opinion, or Scientific yeah. American. What's what's f- great about this is that the research is so strong and foundational that e- even if it goes away as a fad, um, as, as an efficacious modality for reducing suffering and improving well-being, it's going to be there in medicine in a huge way. I think it, we're just scratching the surface of getting into business, so that's going to continue to grow. In education, that's only going to continue to grow. But in terms of like just seeing it plastered all over the place, I mean, I even just saw an article in Time the other day talking about like workplace ways to reduce stress. And then underneath it says, don't worry, we're not going to tell you to meditate, you know, for five minutes. So I think we're already, there's already an acknowledgement that like it's getting a bit overused. Um, but it's, it, let's keep in mind for anyone that's listening, I, um, this has been around for 2,600 plus years. So I'm not saying meditation is going away. I'm just saying kind of the hype around this, um, most of which is, I wouldn't, I would argue is not a sincere interest. It's just people like latching onto something. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, New York Magazine used to do this thing. I don't know if they do it anymore. They talked about like the hype cycle. So you get like the build up and then the, it, the, a thing, whatever it is that's being hyped reaches a peak and then you get a backlash. Yeah. But then you get a backlash to the backlash. Oh. And so like, I think hype cycles are a good way to sort of pan back the camera and think about this from a more geologic perspective because yeah. I do think we're going to see a lot of that but at the root of it is at the root of the proposition of mindfulness and meditation is look this thing has been tested not only in the labs but by by but also in the individual labs of human minds for thousands of years and so I do think it's is going to be around and um, we may get some bad press and some good press at, at various times, but I think we're kind of on an inexorable march toward this thing being a, a public health staple, I hope, in the long yeah. term. Yeah, I, I agree. Here's my last question for you. Sure. People who want to learn more about you, mm. where can they do so? Um, so <laughs> this this new thing that I, I started doing. Um, so anytime I give a presentation, uh, people want follow-up resources, and I don't always have the best way to do that. So I, I have this number that if people texted their email address to this number, <laughs> in three minutes, it'll send them a follow-up email that has like five of my different guided meditations, my seven okay, page. Great, so, great. so this is the number is 917-983-0105. Uh, 917-983-0105. And so if you just text your email address to that, it'll give you all my contact information, but also like five of my different meditations, a seven-page mindfulness starter kit with app recommendations, books, and all that stuff. Um, so just to get started, it's all there. Um, but I, you know, I'm on the, the normal social media. Um, I Facebook Live, one of my Tuesday night meditation groups. Um, I write a, a 
post called Coffee with Corey on Instagram and Twitter if you want to check that out. So uh, all that all that is there. But my primary teachings um, on Long Island, uh, you know, I've, I've run a number of groups, retreats in the Long Island, New York area. So uh, if you're nearby, it'd be great to have you. And if not, you could come by for a retreat. Um, you know, I run those uh, a couple times a year on Long Island. Awesome. Yeah. Great job, man. Thanks, Dan. You Appreciate killed it. it. You really did a great job. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.